Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 to 7. The 39th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on May 21st, 2017 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Jack Crabtree and is being made available to you by Gutenberg College. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. Contributions to Jack Crabtree may be made at www.soundinterp.wordpress.com. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 14, Translation, Installment, 2017, number 2, accompanies this talk. Please note, the second half of verse 11, part of paragraph 64 in Jack's translation, was not recorded when Jack read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. Please refer to handout 14 for the full text. Okay, we're back in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 in your normal Bibles, your typical Bibles. Uh, we've made it down through paragraph 59, 11.4 in uh, paragraph 59 in my translation. I'm going to start, I'm going to take the chapter from the top and uh, and we'll go on with Enoch. Now belief in the underlying claim on the, belief is the underlying claim on the things that one eagerly anticipates. The reason we can know of things that are not themselves seen. But by it, indeed, our elders were commended. As to belief, we understand the ages to have been ordered by the utterance of God, with the consequence that what is seen is not born of things that are evident. As to belief, Abel offered up to God a better offering than Cain. In view of this, he was attested to be dikaios, God attesting to it on the occasion of his gifts, and through it, though he died, yet he speaks." As to belief, Enoch was taken up such that he did not see death, and he could not be found because God had taken him up. Now before his taking up, he had been attested to be pleasing to God. Yet without belief, it is impossible to be pleasing, for it is necessary for the one who approaches God to believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. As to belief... Having been warned about things not yet seen, Noah, paying heed to it, prepared an ark to keep his household safe through that event by which he condemned the world, and he became an heir by the dikaiosune that accords with belief. As to belief, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to the place that he was eventually to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. As to belief, he lived as a foreigner in the land of promise, dwelling in tents, along with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was awaiting a city that had foundations, the architect and builder of which would be God. As to belief, even while Sarah herself was barren, he received the ability to produce an offspring. Therefore, indeed, from one man who had been brought near to death, even these offspring were fathered. They were as the stars of the heavens in number and as the countless sand that is on the shore of the sea. Okay, we may get a little further than that, but that, that's good enough for now. So we enter into the section where he's talking about the significance and the value of and the nature of belief. Um, it's, a, it's a whole new section of the letter. It's not directly related to the, the main body of the work that he's just completed. Um, he's going to, once, once he explores the essence of belief, the nature of belief, and what its value and significance of, then he's going to once again enter into an exhortation. Therefore, keep believing. Uh, believe, uh, endure in your belief, persevere in your belief, don't give up on your belief. Now, he's not, he doesn't do that right away, but that's how he's going to um, end this whole section. In the meantime, he's exploring what belief is, various aspects of what belief is, and what its value and its significance is. So in each of these examples from the Old Testament, um, 
they, they each tell us something different. It's not like it's the same message each time. They, they come at belief in a different kind of direction, and we learn different things. And I'm going to try to highlight what it is I think we learn about belief in each of these cases. He starts off by, uh, in verse 3, paragraph 58, by saying, speaking of belief, as to belief, we understand that the ages have been ordered by the utterance of God with the consequence that what is seen is not born of things that are evident. So what is foundational to this belief that we have that's going to lead to our being children of God who inherit eternal life? What's foundational is our recognition that God is the creator and the nature of his relationship to created reality. We have to understand that in order to have anything else that belief entails, in order to believe anything else that belief believes. You start off with understanding who God is. And who God is is the one who can bring things into being simply by speaking them into being. And he's obviously, this is an allusion back to Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth, or Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth, and how did he do it? He didn't take half of a dragon and form the earth out of it, and the other half make the heavens out of it. He didn't have to slay some god and take his blood and make people out of them. He didn't have to take material that preexisted. He could speak into absolute, blank, sterile nothingness and say, I want this to be, and it came to be. So that's who we're dealing with. That's the the God who's behind all of reality. Well, that God who's behind all of reality, that's the one we're going to believe if we are going to be saved from his wrath and inherit eternal life. We are going to believe him. When he promises something, we believe that he will do it. When he has a purpose, we believe that he will accomplish that purpose. If he, if he tells us to do something, we believe that that's part of his plan and purpose and we need to do that and we need to fall in line and obey him and submit to his instructions, submit to his will. Uh, well, who is this guy that we are obeying, believing, trusting, and so on? It's the God who is so completely and utterly and totally in control of reality that all he has to do is say, I want this, and it will be. I want this, and it will be. So there's nothing in all of history that's going to be an obstacle to him. And we'll see examples of that. uh, Paul's going to give us examples of that as he goes, where from from all appearances, if if you take what's evident and manifest before you, it would look like God's purposes are impossible. Uh, to to be realized. His promises are impossible for him to fulfill. Because look, Abraham's about to die and, and his wife is barren. He can't have a child. But all God has to do is say, let there be Isaac and there will be Isaac. That's all he has to do. So that that he, he starts with that, and I think he starts with that because that's foundational to everything else that's coming. That's the essence of our belief, is knowing who God is, understanding who he is, and living our whole life in the light of that understanding of who we're dealing with. That's foundational to belief. Then we got far enough to get to Abel, and Abel is interesting because that, that's an interesting example to start with. Because Abel is somebody who we see him honoring God, and I, I think implicit in the nature of his honoring God is his recognition that God is the, the God described in verse 3, paragraph 58. We understand the ages to have been ordered by the utterance of God with the consequence that what is seen is not born of things that are evident. That's who God is. So when it comes time to... Express your gratitude, your praise, your appreciation of God, the fact that you value God. Um, Abel didn't just slap down some vegetables, or he didn't just slap down some hamburger. Abel gave him the choicest of the choicest portion of the animal that he was offering up to God, and therefore his offering was accepted by God. 
whereas his brother Cain slapped down some vegetables and God was not pleased with him. And we explored that a little bit last week. Obviously, it's the heart that is either pleasing or not pleasing to God, not the offering, but the offerings were um, indicative of the condition of the heart of each of them. Okay, now, now we come to Enoch in 60. Uh, this is chapter 11, verse 5, or paragraph 60 in mine. As to belief, Enoch was taken up such that he did not see death. This is a short account, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. It's in uh, Genesis 5, 521-24. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Um, That's all it says. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Paul understands that account to be saying that Enoch did not die. God simply translated him. That's the language he uses in Hebrew. He just translated him to another sphere of existence or another kind of existence or something like that. So Enoch is somebody, is one of the few people in human history who didn't undergo death, but simply out of nowhere just gets translated on to another order of existence. Well, he's, he's the one that, is, that Paul is citing as our example here. What can we know from the Genesis account? I think what we can know from the Genesis account is that Enoch found favor with God, I think that's the significance of him not having to experience death and just being translated. You know, presumably, that's not such a rare um, gift, if you will, is not going to happen to someone if God is displeased with you, if you do not have the favor of God. So I think we can read into that legitimately that Enoch found favor in God's eyes. Why did Enoch find favor in God's eyes? Well, the account tells us. It's because he walked with God. So he walked with God. That means that he found favor in God's eyes, and therefore God rewarded him with this unique experience of simply being translated and not having to experience and undergo death. Now, Paul then goes on to add something in Hebrews. He's not getting this from the Genesis account. There's no way in the world you could get this from the Genesis account. But he goes on to say, How's he put it? Now, before his taking up, he had been attested to be pleasing to God. Okay, we we know that because he walked with God. That's where he's getting that. Yet without belief, it is impossible to be pleasing. For it is necessary for the one who approaches God to believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So Paul simply extrapolates from the Genesis account here. He walked with God. What does that mean? What does it mean that he walked with God? Well, at a, very, at a bare minimum, because we know from the account that he found favor in God's eyes and was pleasing to God, at a bare minimum, he had to have belief because it's impossible to please God without belief. And then he just states a principle that seems to be a principle that Paul believes in. The one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So what does he mean, to come to God or to approach God? I, I think the idea is to approach God for a favor, to approach God to make a request. You must believe that God is, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. No one is going to even get an audience with God, let alone be granted their request, who does not believe that God is, and that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's, a, it's an orientation, a positive orientation toward God, where I really fully expect that he will be merciful to me, that he's a God who can be merciful to me. If I don't believe that, then I am not going to have a hearing with God. I can't even approach him. 
So because Paul just simply accepts that as a principle, he's then looking back at the Genesis account and saying uh, Enoch walked with God. Well, what does that mean? Well, at a bare minimum, it meant that he believed God was there and that he was a rewarder of those who seek him, and therefore he sought that reward that God had to offer. That's what the text means by, I mean, perhaps among other things, but at a bare minimum, it includes the fact that he had that attitude toward God. Now, this would be a circular argument, obviously, if the whole purpose of Roman of Hebrews 11 was to prove that you have to have faith in order to be acceptable to God, then this is a really, really fallacious argument, if that's the case. Because you go to Genesis that says nothing about belief, says nothing about finding acceptance by God because you believe, and you read into it, you interpret it in such a way that you decide that Enoch had to have belief in order for this to be true. Therefore, see, you have to have belief in order to be saved. That the text is not proving that. Paul's just asserting that. So that, that wouldn't work as an argument if what he's doing is proving the doctrine of justification by belief. But who says he's doing that? that that's not, clearly, that's not his purpose. Rather, his purpose is to approach the, uh, the notion, the concept of belief, and the role it plays in the life of those people who are God's children and who are going to be rewarded by God and approach it from a variety of different directions. What, what he seems to be looking... Why did he pick Enoch? I mean, the, there's so little to go on here. Why did he pick Enoch? I think it's because Enoch is sort of a living parable, isn't he? I mean, it, it isn't, isn't this a really sort of dramatic example of if you, if you walk with God, that is, if you are rightly related to God, you are going to overcome death. Enoch never even passed through it because... He walked with God. So it, become, it becomes a rather dramatic and graphic parable of the gospel. That belief is going, it, it's those people who believe who are going to have victory over death, are going to escape the wrath of God, are not going to die, but are going to live. So Enoch just sort of represents this picture of the reward that awaits those who who have belief. Now, granted, Genesis doesn't talk about belief, but that's where Paul extrapolates. Yeah, but God was clearly pleased with him. And as, as we know from a variety of different sources and in a variety of different ways, one thing that becomes really clear if you know the scripture is that without belief, it's impossible to please God. So that's what was happening in Enoch's life. Okay, I'm going to go on to the next one before I open it up to your questions, but then I'll, I'll pause for any questions you have on either Enoch or Noah. Uh, let me, let's see. One of the reasons I'm glad that Enoch got chosen and is put there is because it does illustrate another point. Paul is not making this point, but for those of us who've grown up in the 20th, 21st century and have our doctrine given to us by the Christian church, Clearly, we have an example of somebody who knows diddly squat about Moses, Abraham, the covenant, the prophets, Jesus, the Messiah. He's not saved because he's a Christian. He's not saved because he believes the gospel. He's not saved because he believes in the God of Israel, even. None of that would even make any sense to him. He's just dealing with his creator, and that's all. So it makes it obvious that um, God is capable of saving from his wrath and, and saving into life, saving from death, people who have a heart that is oriented toward God in the right kind of way without a shred of knowledge that we have. It's not our embracing an understanding of reality that saves us, it's having the right orientation toward our creator that saves us. So could there be Enochs alive and well in 2017? I don't know why not. At least in principle, it could be. I mean, that's kind of up to God. But you know, some Stone Age tribe in the midst of the jungles in the Philippines 
who has managed to escape any modern knowledge about Christianity, could that be an Enoch who is walking with God and is going to be granted the same inheritance that you and I are? It seems surely possible, theoretically possible. All that's to underline the fact that I mentioned last week. It's not the act of believing that saves us. It's the heart out of which that belief comes that saves us. And in the right kind of historical circumstances, you can have the heart and not the belief because there's no occasion for the belief. There's no circumstances to call upon you to believe. And if there are no circumstances that call upon you to believe, then you'll be saved because of that heart. Now, so when, when Paul says, as, he, as I'm maintaining throughout this whole section, when Paul says, without belief, it is impossible to please God, he's using belief in the same way he does everywhere throughout the whole chapter. Belief as simply an emblem of something inside. Again, it's not the act of believing. We don't really know if Enoch ever committed an act of believing. The text doesn't tell us that. But what Paul is saying is, but he had that heart, that same heart, that everyone who is ever called upon to believe the purposes or promises of God or react to God believingly in any way at all, that's the heart Enoch had. And that's what the text was getting at when it said he walked with God. Okay, the next example he gives is Noah. Now, you all know the story of Noah. So I'm I'm not going to read it, but as you know, the... uh, the world had fallen into violence and injustice and godlessness and evil and wickedness so much that God had had it up to here and he decided he was going to destroy everything. And he did, except for seven people, Noah, his three sons, and their wives. And he saved them by instructing Noah to build a big boat and he told them to get on the boat brought a bunch of animals along, and those were the only creatures that were saved during this dramatic flood that happened. What what is he getting at here? What's the lesson that we learn about belief from Noah? Well, specifically, what Noah did is he heeded, and this is what Paul highlights, he heeded God's warning with regard to the coming wrath. Because the flood is the wrath of God. The flood is the wrath of God against human evil, his, his desire to destroy human evil. And as Peter writes in, is it Second Peter? I think, one of, one of his letters. You know, that it's not, we, we have to remember our history. It's not as if things have been just sort of chugging along exactly the same way, every day the same, every day the same, every day the same, there was, a, there was an incredibly um, dramatic watershed event in the history of the world and of mankind. Once upon a time, all of mankind was destroyed with only Noah being saved. And the point, Peter's point is, we sit here and every day after day after day, it always seems the same. There doesn't, doesn't look to be any wrath coming. As St. Bobby said, it's a slow train coming. Just, it just creeps, we just creep into the future and nothing happens. And after a while, it's very easy to get lulled into kind of a sense of safety. I don't have anything to worry about. It's just going to be the same. Tomorrow will be the same. But just as in the days of Noah, there was a dramatic moment where everything changed. And literally, every, all evil was destroyed. The same thing's going to happen again. So Noah, how, how did he express and manifest his belief? When God warned him that this wrath was coming, he believed him. How do we know he believed him? Because God gave him instructions about how you can be rescued from this wrath that is coming and Noah availed himself of that provision that God had made or had instructed him to make. 
He availed himself of it. Well, you don't avail yourself of an escape route if you don't have anything to escape, if you don't believe that there's something coming that you have to escape. So the same goes for us. I mean, what is belief going to look like in our circumstance? We, we need to heed the warning of the coming wrath. And we face the same challenge in that regard that Noah did. It just sounds like the stuff out of fairy tales to think that God is going to come and destroy the world one day, wipe out the world and create a whole new heaven and a whole new earth. That doesn't happen, right? That doesn't happen. And so it's easy to just sort of dismiss that as fiction, as fairy tale, as some, nothing to worry about, just a story. Noah didn't take it as just a story. He took it as, an, as a concrete reality that he had to come to terms with, and so should we. It's a concrete reality that we need to come to terms with. We are not going to live forever. I was listening to someone talk about how the, the techies in Silicon Valley, the, great, the latest fad is uh, the fountain of youth living, living forever where technologically we are so savvy that we're going to be able to uh, conquer death and you know, find the right chemicals, the right techniques, the right something or other, and we're going to be able to be forever young and never have to die. Okay, but again, we have to heed the warning. You, you, can, be as, you can make your body as... In, as uh, what's the word I'm looking for? is having as much longevity as you want, somebody's coming to slay you. It doesn't matter how healthy you are. You're going to be speared through by the, the sword of, of God when he comes in wrath and when he comes in judgment. The whole world is going to be destroyed. The heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed. So are you going to escape the wrath of God? Are you going to escape that death? Are you going to escape that judgment? Those who believe that God is who he says he is, heed the warning. Recognize that that's real, concrete, tangible, and we need to, we need to do something about it. Peter draws an analogy between Noah and Jesus. Just as God provided a way to escape for Noah and his family by placing them in the ark, what the gospel is saying is that God has provided a way for us to be rescued from that coming wrath as well if we would, would avail ourselves of it by just being placed into Christ. And what he means by that is to be in Christ is to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple of Christ. So by simply making my life, committing my life to learning from Jesus, obeying Jesus, living my life in the light of what he teaches me, that's my escape. Because he's going to be my advocate who will make sure that when the wrath comes, I don't experience God's wrath. I, I float above it. And I am granted eternal life by the mercy of God instead of the destruction that God's wrath is committed to bringing at the end. Okay, another thing we see with Noah is that belief obeys God. Yeah, that, that's what always troubled me in, when I was much younger reading the chapter 11 of Hebrews. He's talking about belief, but all these guys end up obeying God. And then there is, in my mind, there is a big distinction between obeying and believing. Because we were, you know, I was, it was instilled in me that we're saved by faith and not by works. So since we're saved by faith and not by works... What does obedience have to do with anything? That's a work. That's not what saves us. It's our faith that saves us. It's our confession that Jesus is the Christ that saves us, not our life given over to living our lives in obedience to our Master and our Lord and our Rescuer. Well, Noah doesn't know that you're saved by faith and not by works, so when God instructs him to build the ark, he, like, does it. He obeys the instruction of God, and, and that obedience is part of his being rescued. I think we are to understand that Noah's ark building was a, was a task that God gave to him 
that was a, is, was a way that God gave Noah to give expression to his belief in God. His ark building was unique to Noah. I'm not saved by building an ark. In fact, I'm quite sure God would say, Jack, what are you doing? <laughs> but, but I do have whatever it is that God gives me to do uniquely. I think that's what Jesus was getting at when he said, unless you pick up your cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. Just as Noah was giving the task of building an ark, Jesus was giving the task of going to the cross and dying for the sins of the world. And, and often the task that's given us is something of an ordeal. We, we have something that we have to do, that we are called upon to endure, called upon to suffer, called upon to experience, that is oftentimes involves tragedy, loss, grief, sorrow, any number of things. Certainly Jesus did. It's not as clear in the case of Noah, but you, know, you have to remember there's no Home Depot for Noah. I, he's, he's building this huge ark by hand, um, an arduous task that must have taken a long, long time, and he looks like an idiot the whole time. I mean, it had to be embarrassing, really, in a lot of ways. Uh, all kinds of people must have shamed him because he's taking something seriously that no one else is taking seriously. Well, it's going to take a different form in each and every one of our lives, but we each have a cross to bear, and I think by cross there, the cross represents the particular ordeal that is going to be given to you. Jesus went through his and was obedient to his ordeal. He picked up his cross and and went to his death. I have a cross that I need to pick up. I have an ordeal that God is calling upon me to, to be obedient to. I'm gonna, I have to do the thing that God has called upon me to do. I have to suffer what God has called upon me to suffer. And that sometimes that might be proactive, active. God will tell me, here's what I want you to do, and you need to go do it. Some, oftentimes, it's passive. Things happen to me that are completely out of my control. I didn't want them. I didn't seek them. I didn't go after them, but they hit me nonetheless. They, came, they, they overcame me nonetheless. So what am I going to do? Am I going to obediently uh, endure and persevere through the ordeal that God has given me or not? Am I going to cave? Is my belief going to crumble? Noah had his cross to bear, and his cross to bear was the building of the ark in preparation for the day of God's wrath, I think. Now, again, Paul extrapolates. He tells us things about Noah that uh, are not in Genesis. You, would, you couldn't prove them by the Genesis account. He says Noah became an heir of eternal life. Genesis doesn't say that. But Paul understands, no, that his heart was the kind of heart in a human being that God is going to reward with eternal life. So he became an heir of eternal life. He became an heir of eternal life because he was granted dikaiosune. Okay, what we've talked about dikaiosune. Dikaiosune is that state of where God has said, has sent, has passed sentence on us and said, you are dikaios, which basically means you are pardoned, to, to use a single word. I'm not going to hold your evil and your depravity and your wickedness against you. I, I f- overlook all that. I pardon that. I, what I'm going to do is give you life in the eternal kingdom of God, even though you don't deserve it. I mean, all that's packed into Paul's concept of dikaiosune, and he attributes that to Noah. Noah had dikaiosune, just like you and I do through our belief in Jesus. And he was granted dikaiosune because of his belief, he tells us. Okay. Well, that's all the pre-Abrahamic examples that he gives us. Let me pause there and uh, entertain any comments or questions you have before I go on to Abraham. The microphone first, Jack, because I wanted to make a comment sure, uh, and then ask an inquiry. The comment um, has to do with your 
earliest remark that God spoke into creation. He didn't use anything particular, ex nihilo. I know I've made this remark to you, but I'd like to make it in public that I'm uh, aware of, and I've read two books by Robert Piccioni, uh, a PhD in astrophysics in Caltech and Stanford. Uh, he explains the Big Bang uh, as an explosion of the most concentrated particle, not in the deep depths of the cosmos, no, he says, in the deep depths of nowhere. In other words, that Big Bang created the cosmos. What a nice thing to hear from a scientist who kind of supports the idea of ex nihilo. That was my remark. And this gentleman uh, writes well and uh, has a a couple of other books that can be found on the Internet uh, that I think supports his heart. He's a man of chest, also a Ph.D. in astrophysics. Quoting the abolition of man by C.S. Lewis, (laughs) in (laughs) in case that escaped you. So I can ask a question now okay. back to Cain and Abel. And okay. Abel uh, presented uh, the correct gift. Uh, he presented his choicest of, I don't, of beef. But Cain, uh, I'm going to exaggerate, you said he slapped down some vegetables. But here's my inquiry. Is it, isn't it important that Abel gave a gift of blood, an animal sacrifice that had to do with blood. Is that a lesson we uh, need to learn uh, at this time? Or am I making uh, a wrong religious connection with blood? Well, there are interpreters who like, who like to make that point and emphasize that point. But two, two things. The text doesn't make any any mention at all about the fact that Cain gave the wrong, uh, sub, the, his offering was of the wrong substance. God, God goes immediately to Cain's heart. And then secondly, there's no indication that this is a propitiatory offering. It seems to me that it's a, what, what later will be a thank offering. It's just a, a, a way of showing appreciation to God, thanks to God, praise to God by way of this offering. So the blood would only be important in a propitiatory offering. A propitiatory offering is an offering where you're appealing God to be merciful for your, for your sin. But there's nothing in the text that would make it all, it at all evident that it's a propitiatory offering. So, I mean, no, notice that a lot of the thank offerings in the temple are grain and, you know, that, that they're not meat. They're so... Not. Yeah, I brought it up because I've heard that remark about blood before. And who knows, Cain very well might have brought the best of the vegetables because he was making a best offer in competition with his brother. He didn't just slap down some vegetables, I'm I'm trying to say. Well, are are you asserting that? Well, no, I'm, I'm trying to note that you implied Cain just slapped down some vegetables. Yeah, that's because when David was teaching through there, he, he was noticing in the Hebrew the, the difference about how much the Hebrew text works to say the choicest of the choicest of the best portion of the, of the animal in the case of Abel. And the text in the case of Cain says he gave, he gave God some vegetables. Very good. So. That clarifies it, and that's what yeah. I was asking. You put your finger right on a question I've been wrestling with, which is the relationship between faith and knowledge. Hmm. And I was just curious if you could talk more about it. It stems for me from, I just finished reading um, Under the Banner of Heaven. I don't know if anyone's ever read that, but... Oh, uh, then... Krakauer? Yeah. No, I haven't read it, but I... Okay. It rings a bell. Yeah. An investigation into predominantly the fundamentalist wing of the Church of Latter-day Saints uh, with a secondary emphasis just on LDS theology as a whole. Okay. And um, it... I guess what was so disturbing was here, this is a new religion that is enormous, that is based on a mirage. I mean, there's, it, it, there's nothing, it, it's just amazing to read these accounts, and you're like, there's no empirical reason to believe any of the tenets of this church. I mean, it's almost, I can't believe, it. I mean, it just it makes me want to have a conversation with someone that does. And so it, it's like, it's void of any empirical data 
that, mm-hmm. of knowledge. And so it, that's on one extreme. And on the other extreme, you could have, well, if I get all the knowledge right, if it, if it is verifiable, if it is empirical, as, as well as, you know, and we, so we do try to prove every bit of the creation theory or prove the existence of things, which is, I'm not, I mean, that's credible research and worth looking into. It just still raises this question about the relationship between faith and knowledge. And you touched on it with Enoch, which I thought was so fascinating. I never thought about that. So mostly I'm just wanting to see if you could talk a little bit more about that, if, if we could be here all day. I just think it's such a... It's just we so quickly can hang our faith on, no, this is objectively true. And, and there's, again, that, that can be a very good thing. If Jesus didn't live, there's a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. If yeah. the kind of, in other words, if the kind of evidence came out against Jesus that is so clear about a person like Joseph Smith, I would, that would devastate all of us and render our faith. It would just rupture every aspect of our faith. So right. does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. On the one hand, I think the Christian culture is full of people who are intrigued by the knowledge of theology, history, the Bible, and so on. And they amass a lot of knowledge. They master it. They're, they're good at it. If you ask them if they believe it, well, sure, yeah. But what does it mean when, it, when they say they believe it? Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm just talking about a particular kind of individual, obviously. I'm not saying that's true of everybody out there. But there is a certain kind of individual who it, it is solely and completely up here. I mean, it's kind of like believing in UFOs or Sasquatch or something. Um, do I believe them, in them? Yes. But do I base my life on them? Well, I don't. <laughs> and you have a lot of people who I think would say, yes, I believe in UFOs. Yes, I believe in Sasquatch. Did I say I believed in them? I, I'm not committed myself. <laughs> a lot of people who believe in Sasquatch and UFOs uh, but it doesn't change their life. It's entertainment. It's intellectual fodder. To as a ho- it's a hobby. Uh, there are a lot of Christians in Christian culture who make the objective things of faith their hobby. And yes, they're interested in it. Yes, they're intrigued by it. Yes, they believe it. Yes, they're taking time to explore it. But there's something something fundamentally missing, and that is but they haven't staked their entire being on the truth of this thing, such that it's going to translate into building an ark if God tells you to build an ark, or leaving your homeland and go to a country that you've never heard of before if God tells you to do that. You're not about to do that because you're not, you're, you're not wholly in. You're not committing your very being and your very life and your very existence to the fact that this God exists and I have to deal with him on his terms. I I think that's what James is getting at when he says faith without works is dead. I mean, anyone can make an ostensible claim to believe, but the the one who has a a belief that's really a, a working understanding of reality out of which they live in reality is the person who acts on it and whose life is committed to it. I think that's the genius and of Kierkegaard's insight. Surrounded by a church, all of whom believed, and none of whom believed any of it. <laughs> they all believed as a, here, here's my religion, here's what we believe, here's what we hold to, but in order to act, but am I going to act in a way that is, uh, follows from what I believe, that's an entirely different matter. That's an existential commitment. That's a commitment to stake my existence on the truth of this. And that's what Paul, from the get-go in, in Hebrews 11, is talking about. When he talks about belief, that's what he means. He doesn't mean simply an intellectual understanding what he means is an exo- existential commitment that is grounded in and founded on that, uh, that understanding. Now, having, having said that, is what we understand and the content of what we understand at all relevant to this stuff? Well, yeah, 
because part of the way my orientation... Uh, okay, let me back up. Who are the people who make an existential commitment to, to obey God? The people who have a heart that's oriented positively toward God. We're not in rebellion. We're not hostile to him. We're not antagonistic to him. We're positively inclined to him. So when the invitation comes, believe in me and I will give you life, we're right there. Okay, I'm going to stake my entire existence on that. So ultimately, what, what Paul, Paul's concept of belief is, we're seeing something that reflects that orientation or, or lack of that in a person. The one who believes is so oriented positively, the one who doesn't believe is negatively oriented toward God. So what Jesus is getting at in all those times when he says, if you accept me, I will accept you. If you reject me, I will reject you. Well, there's content. He's saying it it makes a difference what content you're going to be responding to here. But that's not because that's absolutely the case throughout all of human history for every individual. It wasn't true of Enoch. So that's not an absolute claim. What Paul is, uh, I'm sorry, what Jesus is doing is speaking to his generation, to his audience that is right there. They don't have any good excuses not to believe that he's the Messiah. They have all the evidence they need, and yet they're, they're balking at it because their heart is negatively, negatively oriented toward God. Uh, so to them, he's saying, if you accept me, I will accept you. But if you reject me, if you deny me, I will deny you. At times, at the right kind of, in the right kind of occasion, the right kind of circumstances, what we believe is going to reveal the condition of my heart. And John, in his letters, makes a big deal out of this, that you're, you're to discern the spirits. He says that the... The doctrines that you believe are going to speak volumes about what passions and commitments are really at the heart of who you are. If you have passions and commitments that are positively inclined toward God, then the truth from God is something that you're going to embrace. At whatever level you're confronted with it, you're going to embrace it because you're you're oriented toward God. If you're not oriented toward God, you're going to reject it. You have other priorities, other values. You're interested in other things. That's not what you're interested in. So you believe, you believe the person who comes along, even if it's complete bull and complete mirage, if it somehow flatters you, gets you off the hook, gives you an opportunity to indulge certain desires and lusts of one kind or another, I want that. I'm going after that. And that, that, So the content of what you believe in that case, the content of the knowledge, is revealing what you're really interested in deep inside. Okay, yeah, that's really, really helpful. I think it, 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 I mean, we're all born agitated by certain appetites and needs and for belonging, for... We really were born to understand. We want to understand, uh, but that doesn't mean we want to understand the truth. Right. And we're we're in the market for, you know, any sort of the great religions that we talk about that come along and and check the boxes, right? And then the right set of circumstances come along, and that answers all my questions, and it's like this eight-track cassette that we put in, and it fills the void, right? And and it feels satisfactory, but it's not the truth. Right. That, that's a great point, because a lot of people get faked out, especially by Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, any, any number of kind of off-kilter versions of how you relate to God. They're coherent. I mean, boy, do they have a system. I mean, all the, they, you know, they've worked on it sometimes for decades and centuries, and they've got, they've got all the questions answered and all the connections made and so on. But that, that's a great point. Yeah, they want to understand, but not the truth. That, that's a whole different issue. So we, we shouldn't get faked out by how much it seems to offer us understanding. That satisfies the intellect, something in the intellect, but it's still, not, it's still not reflecting a heart that wants to know, but what's actually so? How is this really going down? That's an entirely different matter. 
a lot of times not quite as clear as believing and not believing. And so just take any church family or church congregation, and what you said is believing and then acting. Uh, what did you say, acting your belief or acting acting, as, acting in the light of, yeah. of that thing you and, believe in? And so that's a, a spot where it gets a little unclear for me anyway, the, because I'm assuming that if you have belief, then acting out belief is going to, I mean, it's going to show some way or another. I mean, so if you have true belief, then that's going to imply that you will be acting out that. Mm -hmm. But the converse of that, if you you are acting out your belief, it might not necessarily imply that you have belief. Do you follow me, what I'm saying? Yes, I think so. Okay. In other words, and so that... (laughs) You know, you can have a group of people and say, yes, I believe in God. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're centered on true belief. Is that? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, that's an area where I, I just think it's that we're confronted with a lot of times, even, you know, within a group of believers or whatever. How, what acting out belief versus real belief. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you can just comment on it. It was kind of like what Andrew was saying, but he was looking at it from, a, from an, an intellectual point, and I'm just looking at it as a more of an everyday common life thing. So. Well, from the other direction, from the direction of works as opposed to your understanding. Yeah. What, what if you give God the works? Does, that ne- does it necessarily follow that you have the belief? The, the no, faith, right? I no, yeah, I I know that. I mean, that doesn't make that doesn't make sense. Okay, but, but I think the I'm, I'm not sure it's exactly it's exactly where people are are coming from. I mean, uh, well, go ahead, go ahead. You can you can. Well, do you want to comment on this, yeah. Dan? Okay. Yeah, I had a thought while we were going through this. Is is if we think of action or works as a symptom of an underlying condition. If I have a cold, I will sneeze. If I sneeze, that doesn't mean I have a cold. Sneezing won't send me to heaven, but if I'm going to heaven, I'll sneeze. If you have the symptoms of Christianity, then it's more likely you have Christianity than if you don't have any of the symptoms. But some people know how to fake the sick symptoms, even though they don't have the Christianity. I don't know. I'm throwing that one out. So That's great. Yeah. That's well said. Uh, he said it more eloquently, but that's what I would have said. Is that is that... Is that responding to? I mean, and that's a very, that's just as important to recognize as the discussion that Andrew and I were having. Uh, On the other side of that, it's very important to recognize how easily we can fake the commitment. In fact, I mean, remember in 1 Corinthians 13, if you give your body to be burned but have not love, what good is it? All kinds of people can make, can take dramatic action, self-sacrificial, heroic, incredible action and it's and it's just sneezing but you don't have the cold it's an attempt to i mean there's the psychology of that i probably all kinds of facets to that but wanting to get god to look at you wanting to get god to respond whatever but selling everything and feeding the poor and going off and living in a cave may get a lot of attention and it may be dramatic and you may be utterly sincere in the sense, sincere in the sense that, you know, you're not doing it for show, you're not doing it for publicity, you're doing it for God. But God is saying, I, I never asked you to do that. What I want from you is something else. And you're going to show your faith in me by doing this something else, not by, not by this dramatic act that you've taken for me. I'll tell you when I want you to, to sell everything and feed the poor. I'll tell you. But in the meantime, you obey me and you follow me and you believe in me, and you believe in my promises, and you believe in my purposes, that's the, the one who's walking with God. So we're often kind of impelled. I mean, I, I spent a whole childhood. Every sermon was a sermon to try to get me to be a missionary, and, and the whole thing was revving up my, my passion, my commitment to go out there and sacrifice for God and do the extraordinary thing. Well, that's only obedience if God is calling on you to do the extraordinary thing. 
If you do the extraordinary thing and he's not calling on you to do that, then you're not being obedient. Sometimes being obedient is put up with your sucky little life that never changes. That's what's being obedient. Sometimes I, I wonder and, and worry when I examine myself. If I'm not one of those people that has found their favorite myth and has invested in it mm-hmm. as if it was true. I mean, there are people who know everything about the Lord of the Rings. Right. 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 And in the back, of the, when you talk to them, it's like you can tell they wish that was true. They, they would like to go into that book and live those adventures or even hang out and watch them happen. And then they'll get in shouting matches with each other about this detail or that detail. And I think those people you mentioned about who have this wide body of knowledge about Christianity and the history of the Bible and the, the Bible lands and the Bible lands history, I wonder if any of them have, have sort of grasped the Bible message, message and thought, wouldn't that be great if that was true? Yeah, yeah. And then just invest themselves in studying it and filling their head with it so it feels like it's true. Yeah, no, that's a great, a great way to describe it. And that's my fear, is that there are a lot more of those folks in the pews of our churches than, than I care to think. I mean, I, frankly, I think I was there for a certain number of years in my life. I was, I was a part of a culture that took this seriously, and so I took it seriously, and the only way that my black heart knew how to take it seriously is I made it a, a head game. Know this stuff, under, understand this stuff, memorize this stuff, master this stuff, and so on. But that, there's, there's none of me in that. It's just, it's just me, my intellect, and this content out here. And my mind bringing coherence and mastering that content. Well, that, that doesn't make you a believer in the sense that the, the Bible is calling us to believe. It just makes you a smart guy. In culture, well... Bible, so, Bible, biblically smart. Yeah. When you're your culture's pumping this out to you since you were a child and rewarding you right. for responding to it right. a certain way. Right. Then you confuse the, the accolades, you, the, the prestige, or the, with you have, it's like you've made it real. Mm-hmm. When, See, that, that, that's why, and, and I'm sure I have been greatly misunderstood in this regard, but I've said in the past, Christianity is not for kids. Christianity is for grown-ups. You know, there came a point in my time where, for the, where I finally realized I have a life, <laughs> I have an existence, and I have to decide what to do with my existence. You can't make an existential commitment until you have an existence to commit. And I'm not sure children are there yet. They're just, they're just learning about their world and reality and amassing knowledge and their mind is growing and they're coming to understand and there's absolutely nothing wrong if they're going to be amassing knowledge, sticking a bunch of Bible knowledge in there. But the mistake, I think, often that the church makes... I, I was back in the Bible... Well, finish your thought. The, church that the, the mistake the church makes is to consider that and help them consider that to be spirituality, to be faith, to be belief, as if it were the real deal. You're a, you're a Christian. No, you're not. You just know a lot about what Christians know a lot about. But, but we don't even know if you're a Christian yet. Life hasn't, even, life hasn't even slapped you in the face yet. So we don't know where you're at. Uh, I was back in the Bible Belt, and uh, <laughs> these young mothers were having a contest about whose child became a believer earlier. Well, my... My child, when they were three-year-old, prayed to receive Jesus. You know, my, my child was saved when he was three years old. And all I could think is, how on earth could you possibly know that? I mean, how hard is it to get a confession out of a three-year-old? <laughs> that makes absolutely no sense. But they, they were utterly serious about that. They, they, their theology, everything supported them in believing that all you have to do is make that kind of confession and have a certain kind of knowledge that goes with that, and that's what makes you a believer. Well, that, that's the critical thing to see. No, there is no amount of knowledge that makes me a believer, and there's no amount of deeds that make me a believer. 
the thing that makes me a believer is having a heart that has passions and desires and values to want to know the living God and honor him and serve him. And out of that comes both belief and obedience. Belief and obedience flow out of that same, that same heart, if and when it exists. But there's no, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't know a single thing about what Paul's talking about if we, if we mistake belief for either deeds or understanding alone, in isolation, unconnected, ungrounded with something inside that is the thing that really makes the difference. Okay, well, Abraham's just going to have to wait even longer. Any final comment or question? Okay, we'll look at Abraham next week.